We are continuing in the chronological life of Jesus, and we are going to uh, look, beginning today, in, in uh, uh, Matthew 17. So we're looking at the four different Gospels, using the Gospel of Luke as, our, as the outline and the direction in which we're going through for this. And then uh, we just discussed last week the Transfiguration. <clears throat> and as they were coming off that mountain of Transfiguration, if we look in Matthew chapter 17... Verse 9, And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So this continues on the ministry of silence. Remember, Jesus had no outward ministry, no vocal ministry to the Jews after the, the unpardonable sin came forth. He ministered to individuals, never to the masses after that. When he spoke to the masses, he only spoke in parables from that day. He never spoke again clearly to them. And then it says he would take his own disciples aside and then explain it to them. So, this continues very much with this pattern. So, so, uh, uh, Peter, James, and John were up on that mountain with him. He says, don't tell anybody about the vision that you saw. And also, he tells them, until the Son of Man has risen from the dead... This is exactly the same thing that he had said earlier, and it's even noted in the same chapter in verse 21. It says, uh, um, it said that from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So as soon as Peter, speaking on behalf of them all, had identified Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus started to reveal to them his plan of suffering of death, and of resurrection. But they did not understand the resurrection. Here they don't understand it because we know later on in, in, this, same, in, the, in this same story that Jesus speaks of it again and it says they didn't know what he was talking about, but they didn't ask him further details. And so if we look now, continue on in verse 10 of chapter 17, verse 10, uh, it says, And the disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and he said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did to him, and and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them about John the Baptist. So Jesus, again, was revealing something about his coming and his suffering. And so his disciples say, said to him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first before the coming of the Son of Man? And, and uh, Jesus said in verse 11, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. So actually the scribes were correct. So let's look at the portion that the scribes got this from. So if you look just before the Gospel of Matthew is the last book of the Old Testament, which is Malachi. And if you turn to Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, in Malachi chapter 3, it, it speaks, speaks in verse 1 of an unnamed messenger is going to come before the coming of the Lord. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. But I am going to send my messenger... And he will clear the way before me. 
And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, there is a messenger that is going to come before the Lord himself comes. The messenger in chapter 3, verse 1 of Malachi is unnamed. But then if you look in Malachi chapter 4, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I am going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearers, and he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So there's actually two named two messengers, one unnamed and one named. The named one is Elijah. We know that that uh, um, that John himself, John the Baptist himself, is not Elijah, and we know that. From, from John chapter 1, in John chapter 1, they asked John, are you Elijah? And John said, no. So in, in John 1, verse 21, it says, they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. So we know that John is not the physical, resurrected Elijah. John was actually born of Elizabeth. We have that, that documented. So, this is the first revelation that Jesus puts forth of the two comings of the same Messiah. Meaning that the Messiah is going to come, that first appearance of Jesus here on earth that we're reading about. Before Jesus came, the messenger came, the unnamed messenger that was described in Malachi chapter 1. That is John the Baptist, is the unnamed messenger who came. And as Jesus said, they did to him whatever they wished. And they ended up killing him. We've already read about his, his, uh, his death. Then, before the second coming of the Messiah, when Jesus comes again, before he comes again, Elijah will come. Elijah will come to this earth. Remember, he was the man that was taken up, that never underwent death. He was taken directly into heaven. The only two people that are recognized like that, one was Enoch, the other was Elijah. Many people think that, therefore, those are going to be the two that come back in Revelation, the two witnesses. Elijah will come, and he will restore all things, and then the second coming of the Messiah will come. So, Jesus, we know, came once, walked on this earth, and he's coming again. If you talk to Jews, they, some understand that there is going to be two comings. Many Jews will interpret this not as the same person coming twice, but two separate comings. Meaning one as a, as a suffering servant and one as a victorious king. But we understand what that means is that Jesus is coming twice. Once he came as the suffering servant, the next time he comes, he's going to come as the reigning king. And so, Jesus makes that clear to them. But he says, in a sense, Elijah has already come and they did to him whatever they wished. So John was fulfilling a role of Elijah in being a messenger. That's what Jesus is talking about. Now let's read on down about the story of the demoniac. And this is spoken about right at the next portion in, in, uh, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 14. It's also spoken about in Luke and in Mark. But let's read it in Mark, actually, because Mark actually expands a little bit more on it. So we're going to turn to Mark 
chapter 19, Mark chapter 19. So the same incident, right after the transfiguration, Mark chapter, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, and we're going to read from, um, we're going to start reading from verse 14, Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And you see in Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 1, is actually the, the transfiguration occurs, so the same events. And the same events we just covered. So if I read 12 and 13, And he said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things, yet how is it written that the Son of Man, that, that, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it, as it is written. So now as soon as they're coming off this mountain, they saw the transfiguration, Matthew, Mark, and uh, I'm sorry, uh, Peter, James, and John saw this transfiguration. They're coming down the mountain. Jesus said, don't tell any about, anybody about this until I raise from the dead. Then they ask him about Elijah because they understood that Elijah has to come before the Messiah. Jesus gives them a little bit of understanding here. And then this incident. They come down. So you have the other nine disciples are not on the mountain. They're at the base of the mountain. And Jesus, remember, had already commissioned the disciples to go out and to do His work. They were casting out demons. They were raising the dead. They were doing many miracles. So the, so the twelve disciples were already used to this. Jesus had already commissioned them and sent them out. And they had seen this sort of thing happen at their hands. But here is a different kind of incident that occurs. In verse 14, so Mark 9:14, And when they came back to the disciples... They saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and they began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth, and grinds his teeth, and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And he answered me, said to them, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and to the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on him and help us. And Jesus answered and said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and, and, uh, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him, and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up, and he got up. And he came into the house, when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Okay, so when they come down the mountain, look who instigates this argument. 
It is the scribes. The scribes are conversing in verse 14 with the disciples. So the scribes see that his disciples can't cast out a demon and this is a way for them to nullify the Messiahship of Jesus. Because these are the the Messiah's representatives. So Jesus sees this discussion and, and as he's coming down the mountain, these scribes are arguing with the disciples and immediately the crowd sees Jesus and they go running toward him. And so Jesus says to the nine disciples, what are you discussing with them? Not as if he doesn't know. Jesus knows all things. But he asks questions just to draw something out of them. But before they can tell him too much, one in the crowd answers and he says, Teacher, I brought my son to you Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And then, this is actually a spirit, this is a demon possession, which is really a severe demon possession, where this demon has tried multiple times to kill this boy, thrown him into a fire, thrown him into the water. It's a spirit of death that is in this boy. Throws him into terrible convulsions. He foams at the mouth. There are different degrees of, uh, of, of demon possession. This is one in particular that is particularly strong. And so, he describes something about it. And then he says, I brought him out and I told your disciples to cast it out. And they couldn't do it. And it says, and Jesus answered and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. We might look at this as a reproof of the disciples. But look at what Jesus says. He says, O unbelieving generation. Whenever Jesus had used that term, He was speaking specifically of that entire generation that was around Him. Not just of the disciples. He was speaking of that entire generation. He was speaking of the unbelief of all of the people there. And we'll pick up on this a little bit in a minute, but just get the picture of this. So here's this man, he brings to him his son. Now, remember, this is spoken about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mentioned the same instance. In Luke, the man says, this is my only, my only child. So, this is the picture. A man has a child, an only child, one child. This child is so possessed by a demon, he's constantly dealing with this child. His love is just all over this kid. This is his child. This child can't go to school, can't go to all the normal things that kids go through because he has these epileptic fits that are demon-induced, throwing him into a fire, throwing him into the water. And and, uh, if you've ever seen a parent that has, say, a severely autistic child, I mean, the the parent's whole life is taking care of this child. This is their only child. This is the man's only child. His whole life has been taken care, take, uh, taking care of this child. And it's not a young child because Jesus asked him, how long has this been happening? He says, from his childhood. So in other words, he's probably a young teenager at this time because it refers to him as a boy, but he says from his childhood. So this has been going on for years. So think of this in that context that here is a really struggling parent. And he comes for help. He hears that Jesus is there. Jesus happens not to be there, but he hears his disciples. And his disciples try to cast the demon out. It doesn't come out. I mean, this is your last hope. There's nothing else to do. This is your last hope. So he turns to Jesus and he says this in verse 20. 
They bro- so, so in verse 19, and he answered you and he said to them, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. So Jesus says, okay, bring the boy to me. Bring him to me. So Jesus is off from the crowd. Remember, Jesus no longer ministers in masses of people. He takes the man aside, remember, and he heals the blind man. The only time he's ministering to masses anymore is to the Gentiles. To, the, uh, to Jews, since the unpardonable sin, he tries to do this privately. So he says, bring them off to the side, to me. <clears throat> Verse 20, they brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling about and foaming at the mouth. So as soon as the boy sees Jesus, and Jesus sees him, boom, the spirit takes over, throws him into convulsions. You would think that here is Jesus, it's going to be quiet and clean. Deliverance is rarely quiet and clean. This boy is foaming at the mouth and rolling around. In front of Jesus. In front of the Son of God. And look at what Jesus says. In verse 21, he says to the father, How long has this been happening? And he said, From childhood. So here is the boy rolling around. And Jesus isn't going, oh, oh, this. He's standing back. So how long has this been happening? And, and uh, you know, just, just talking with the Father. How long has this been happening? He wants to get a sense from this Father. He wants people to see how long this has been happening, this demon that has controlled this child. Jesus is very cool in this. He's not flustered at all by this severe demon possession. Not flustered at all. He's just, so how long has this been happening? And the man says, from childhood. So he's a, young, he's a boy, probably teenager, happening since his childhood. And then the man describes more. He says, it often throws him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. So he says that this demon possession has tried to destroy my son. He jumps into the fire. He'll jump into water. The demon is trying to destroy this boy. And he says, but if you can do anything, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. So what was the requirement for healing after the unpardonable sin? Before the unpardonable sin, there was no requirement for faith. The, uh, uh, Jesus healed people. They didn't even know who it was. What was the requirement after the unpardonable sin? You had to have faith. You had to have faith and it was based upon personal need. The personal need is obvious. There's a personal need here. There was no faith. Jesus wouldn't heal him. So Jesus leads the man into a place of faith. Remember the same thing that Jesus did with, with the, uh, uh, that, that woman who came and talked about her demon-possessed daughter? He led her into a position where she showed forth personal need and faith. And so Jesus leads the man into it. So the man isn't showing any faith here. He says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. So you see what Jesus studies. He says, you just believe and all things will be possible. He is leading this man to faith. He's leading him to faith. He wants to heal the boy. But Jesus has put constraints upon, upon healing. You must have faith at this point. Prior to the unpardonable sin, no requirement for faith. He would heal people and say, I didn't even know who he was. He just came up and healed me. 
Here you must have faith. He says, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Here is an absolutely desperate father, only child, dealing with this boy for years. This is his final chance to see the boy healed. Wait until you have a child and you just envision. And I'll tell you, if you have a struggling, struggling child, if one of your children, say, say you have multiple children, one of your children is struggling, 80% of your CPU is on that child. All day. All day. Your work, doing whatever you're doing, you're thinking about your struggling child. This is something of parenthood. And, and so, he says this, the man says, I do believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus thinks, that's good enough. You've got a mustard seed of faith. He says, I do believe. Verse 25, when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, remember, he's concerned about the crowd. He's not doing this for the crowd anymore. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. So he commands the spirit out. Now watch this. You would think that the Son of God gives a command. Boom! A nanosecond. The demon's out. No. Didn't happen that way. Verse 26. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out of the boy. So, the boy's rolling around on the ground. Jesus says, so how long has this been happening? He starts having a conversation with the man. He brings the man to faith. And then he commands the demon out. When he commands the demon out, he goes into more severe convulsions. More severe. So something really dramatic is now, is now happening. Remember, before he was foaming at the mouth and, go, and convulsions. Now really severe convulsions. And then it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most said he is dead. Most of the people just said, he's dead. I mean, they thought this kid is dead. Just totally wiped out. The kid is just still there. Have you ever known people that have a, 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 an attack of epilepsy? I mean, they, they sleep like the whole next day or for two days afterward. I mean, it's just really draining on their bodies. This kid was just out. People thought he was just dead. Now, why wouldn't the Spirit come out immediately if this is the Son of God? I think Jesus does this for our sake. Jesus could easily just banish this Spirit from the universe instantly, in an instant. But for our sake. Because when we deal with healing of people, it doesn't always happen instantly. For our sake, He demonstrates this. And this boy becomes, he looks as if he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up. And he got up. And when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. You may recall that the Jews taught that there were three things that only Messiah would be able to do. Three things only Messiah would be able to do. And Jesus demonstrated all three of those things. What were the three things that only the Messiah would be able to do? Name one. Healing a deaf mute. What were the other ones? He healed a Jewish leper. And what was the third one? Third one is healing a man born blind. 
Jesus demonstrated all of them. That's why when he healed a, a, a man who had been a, 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 a mute, uh, who a demon possessed and had been a mute, they said, could this be the Son of God? When he healed the, the, uh, the boy, the, the man who had been born blind, they said, could this be the Son of God? And when they healed the Jewish leper, never had a Jewish leper been healed since the time of the finishing of the law. Uh, there were, there were uh, uh, Gentile lepers, but never a Jewish leper. And this is what brought on the, the instigation. And that's why when Jesus healed this, that man, he sent him to the priests to confirm the healing. This was a, a demon-possessed person that was also mute. Remember why? Because the Jewish way of exorcism is the demon identifies himself and they cast it out by name. Jesus sometimes used that method. But when a man is mute, in this case a mute boy, the demon couldn't identify himself. Jesus still cast him out. How do we know he's mute? Because this is exactly what it says. It says, if you look in verse 17, And one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And look down again in verse 25. And Jesus said, You deaf and mute spirit. So not only was he mute, he was also deaf. You deaf and mute spirit. So the boy was mute and deaf. This was the kind that the disciples couldn't cast out. He's not upset with the disciples that they couldn't cast him out. He just says, this kind only comes out by prayer. In other words, you appeal to me, I'll take care of it. I'm the one who can cast it out. That's why. That's why they couldn't cast it out. They forgot the recognition that only He, only Messiah would be able to cast out a demon from someone who's mute. They had cast out demons before. Remember, the disciples had done this. They had never confronted a, 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 a man who was made mute because of the demon. This was the kind that only Messiah could cast out. He wasn't upset with them. The unbelieving generation part is, haven't you learned it yet? I mean, we've dealt with this issue before. This is the mute kind. This is the kind you can't take care of. You have to appeal to me. I'll take care of it. Settle down. Settle down, scribes. Don't worry. I'm here. I'll take care of it. This is the mute kind. Now, I want to deal with something that just, just follow along with this concept. So, if you look, if you look in, in Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9 is the same, the same incident. Luke chapter 9, and we'll just read verse 42. Luke 9, 42. And while he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. So we read in, 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 uh, in Mark that Jesus took the boy by the hand, picked him up, and gave him to his father. Here, and picked him up, and here it says, and he gave the boy back to his father. This is what Jesus does. He picks people up who the world thinks are just, could never, never change, and he returns them. Whole people. This is the life of Jesus. I want to tell you just a story about a few different people that, that I've known in my own life. There was a man named John Penny, I've mentioned him here a few times before. He and I did prison ministry together for, for, for many years. And uh, 
John came from a broken home. He never knew his father. His mother was an alcoholic. He never went to school after the seventh grade. He just roamed the streets in South Carolina, in Columbia, South Carolina. He became a big drug salesman. He was, he's actually a, a very large, strong man and uh, uh, became a drug dealer. Big drug dealer there in Columbia, South Carolina. The, the uh, drug dealers in Atlanta wanted to get the business. And so this was, this was in, the, uh, in the late 70s or, or early 80s, probably late 70s. They wanted the business. And so they came in to kill him. They came in and they shot him in the back. And he said that he saw the bullet, he says the bullet hit him in the back and bounced off his, his uh, deflected off his, his, his bone in his back here and came out and fell right onto the ground. So I'd go right on the ground. He looked at the bullet, he had been shot in the back and the bullet was on the ground. He gave himself to the Lord after that event. This man was dramatically saved. He had such deep faith. He loved the Lord so much. He lived in a little home, tiny little home, probably 750 square feet. And uh, uh, he put picture, uh, uh, signs all over the wall that were just scripture. So he would just write out scripture verses, stick them into the wall, but put his own name in there. Say for, for example, it would say, I, John, am more than a conqueror. And he would walk around his little home saying, speaking scriptures, putting his own name into the scriptures. This guy's testimony, this guy just, just really became on fire for the Lord. His wife came to know the Lord. And uh, they, they had a ministry where they would go buy boxes of donuts and they would put them in a shopping cart and walk all around his neighborhood, which was a really bad neighborhood, and sell donuts and preach the gospel. Sell donuts and preach the gospel. Very, still a very tough guy. So when we would go, go into the prison ministry, uh, we'd walk down this yard where the men were, were outside and, and we would go into one of the units and have a Bible study in one of the units. And so I did this ministry for about 10 years. He did the first two years or so. He did it with me. And I remember walking across the yard with him. So many of the men knew him and loved him. I mean, hey, John, hey, John, how do you know all these guys? He says, man, I've sold them all drugs. I mean, he just loved the Lord so much. One night we, we, had it, we used to have a Christmas party for the men, for the entire unit. We would invite them into a party and they, they could come down to the cafeteria area. And there we could bring in our families. And so I would bring in my wife and my kids and we would, we would uh, uh, have a big meal for them. Uh, and uh, we'd, we'd serve them this meal, this Christmas meal. And um, there, was a, there was a guy in, in that unit, and we had seen him many times before. There are men in prison who are really women for the other men. And so they dress like women, they walk like women, they talk like women, they, they, they put on makeup like women. And uh, so one of them came in, and he introduced himself. And I had seen him before, but never had a chance to talk with him, but had seen him as we walked across the yard. And so John's wife, Melissa, said to him, she looked at him, she said, what's your name? He said, my name is Precious. That was the name that he went by. She said, that's not your real name. What's your real name? He said, my name is Ernest. She said, that's what I'll call you. Your name is Ernest. You don't have to dress like that. You don't have to be like that. And she said, you get Jesus in your life. You don't have to be that way anymore. 
Well, then the next week we came in to do Bible study, and guess who was in the room? Ernest came to the Bible study. Ernest, and he stood up and he said, I'm not dressing like that anymore. I'm not doing that anymore. Jesus is in my life. You see God pick up people. He picked up John Penny, and he restored him. He picked up Melissa Penny. He restored her. He picked up Ernest, and he restored him. There are people like this that God does this with. And it's not just these down and out people. I saw the same thing happen with Rick Smalley, the big Nobel Prize winner. God started to get hold of his heart. And Rick, Rick used to speak against Christians and the gospel all the time. He was very cynical of Christians. He would make subtle comments to me and, and little jabs. And I saw God change his life. In the last two years of his life, he came to know the Lord. God picks up a man, and I remember Rick saying, I just never knew any of this. I never knew any of this. He just loved it. We used to go to his house and pray with him, and Shireen would go, and he'd bring other, other people and just have these little prayer meetings in his home. And he says, I just never knew any of this. He says, when people pray like this, I mean, something's happening. Something is happening. Jesus has a ministry of picking people up and restoring them. I have known, known students who tell me they, they could never even get up off the ground. They were suffering with such depression. Jesus picks them up and restores them. Jesus restores lives. Socialism doesn't do this. Communism doesn't do this. New Age doesn't do this. Great thoughts. Confucius doesn't do this. Buddha doesn't do this. Jesus does this. He picks up a life and He restores it. He picks up a life and He restores it. You will never, ever see deliverance like you see in Jesus Christ. You will never see a life change like you will see in Jesus Christ. When you see need, you can't solve this need by doing good things. It's fine to do good things. But the heart and the life will only change, fundamentally change, when Jesus comes in the heart. And Jesus can restore. And if ever you become weary and lethargic in your faith and wonder what's going on here, I'm telling you, there is life after life after life that is a testimony of the living God. That Jesus can change a life. And if you are becoming lazy and lethargic in your faith, take hold of the Word of God and press into this. Because Jesus is the only one that can do this. Jesus can take the depressed and lift them up. And lift them out of this. I have seen this time and time and time again. Where Jesus can take lives that are just so totally overcome. On the verge of suicide. On the verge of breakdown. And Jesus turns a life and He restores it. And that life then turns another life. And families are turned through this. Jesus restores the life. Jesus demonstrated this. Picks up the boy. Everyone said, the boy is dead. And Jesus takes him by the hand. Lifts him up. And hands him back to his father. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for the truth of Your Word. That Jesus took the boy that everyone said was dead, lifted him up, and He restored him whole to His Father, demon-free. Abba, Father, I pray for these young people here. That You would so work in their lives. If there be anyone here who's struggling... Father, that You would work in their life to see that Jesus is the Redeemer. He is the One that makes whole. He is the One that restores a life. 
for those who are becoming lethargic in their faith and wondering, can Jesus really change my life? Can really Jesus do anything? Father, I pray that they would press into Your Word and know Jesus, that He is the restorer, that He is the healer, that He is the one who makes well. Father, I pray that You would draw them back wholly to Jesus. Restore the life, I pray, O God. Restore the life and have mercy on these young people. Let them never forget that Jesus is the one that gives life, that restores life, that there is hope in You and in You only. Thank You, Lord Jesus, because You do that wonderful work. I commit, Lord, the lives of these young people to You in the name of Jesus. Amen.